the fledgling eaglets of Hanover are flapping their wings, sometimes too close to the edge of the nest for my own comfort, and they are soon ready to fly out on their own without their parents. And when they do, it won't be on their parents' back, but they'll be lifted by the winds and the currents, and they'll be soaring through the skies with this wind. In Acts 10, there's a fledgling new church, new gathering of Jesus' followers, and they too are experiencing a similar kind of thing. They are beginning to move out from Jerusalem, and they are carried too by the Holy Spirit, the winds of God, even as they are living under the shadow of the Roman Empire. Justo Gonzalez, in his work, his two-volume work, The Story of Christianity, has these comments to make which fit in well with our verses today. And I quote, The earliest Christian community is often idealized. Peter's firmness and eloquence at Pentecost tend to overlook his waverings as to what ought to be done with those Gentiles or non-Jews, those who wish to join the church. The possession of all things common in chapter 4, commendable as it may be, did not abolish all the tensions between the various groups. For the Hellenists in chapter 6 murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution of food. And I go on from Gonzalez. These last words do not refer to a conflict between Jews and Gentiles. For Acts makes it clear that at that time there were still no Gentiles in the church. It was rather a conflict between two groups of Jewish Jesus followers. Those who kept the customs and language of their ancestors, the Hebrews, and those who showed more openness to Hellenistic or Greek influences in the church those two groups. And so we find this progression. Chapter 6, these seven Greek believers are appointed to lead the relief effort. Chapter 7, Stephen, a Greek Jew, engages in a truth-telling sermon that ends up with him on the wrong end of stones that kill him. Philip starts a church in Samaria. We heard about last week his encounter with the eunuch and Paul's conversion in chapter 9. And now we begin chapter 10, with Cornelius' context. Cornelius is this Roman centurion. This is a time of peace in the church, peace between the factions in the Jewish Christian group and also from the Romans. And it's a time of tolerance. Who is Cornelius, we can ask? Well, he's, he's one of six centurions of the Roman cohort, the Italian cohort in Palestine. They're each in charge of 80 soldiers, and they're under Roman rule, of course, and they brought to Palestine as a, pal- as a uh, peacekeeping force. Cent- uh, Cornelius is one uh, as a centurion. Centurions are generally wealthy. They're generally thought to be a, a person of high standing and good moral character, and their salary is 17 times the common soldier. Centurions don't get to be centurions just because they want to be, but because they're reliable people. They demonstrate courage and maturity and efficiency to the Roman cause, and sometimes it takes 15 to 20 years to become a a centurion. 
they often have had many assignments all across the empire by the time they reach this place in their life. They are sometimes brought in as a community arbiter in their local setting to settle disputes of boundaries. They, sometimes they collect taxes. They oversee building projects, mines and quarries, and those kinds of, uh, of, of, of working areas. And sometimes they are the lead officer in security details and executions. Cornelius is the head of a fairly large household of family and slaves, and he has all the benefits of a Roman citizen. And he's in Caesarea. The Roman stronghold, where Pilate makes his winter headquarters. About Cornelius now, we hear these things. Oh, and by the way, he fears God. He's a believer. Not to be, uh, not to be uh, minimized in any way. He fears God. He's attracted to the Jewish faith of these followers of Jesus. He's a devout man with his whole household. And he's known among the people of Caesarea for his generosity. He contributes to community projects. He is known for his prayer life. And just think then. Think about all the connections and all the influence Cornelius has in this world. Nevertheless, he is unclean, according to Jewish custom, carried over in the early church. He is an unclean Gentile with whom a Jewish believer does not share a meal, enter their property, much less touch or associate for fear of becoming influenced by unholy practices. For in their understanding, simply put, to be a Gentile is to be an unbeliever, just because you're a Gentile. So chapter 10 continues with Peter's context. That was Cornelius' context. Peter's one of the 12. We know a lot about Peter. At various times, he is one who disputes with his fellow disciples about who's going to be the greatest and that kind of stuff. He's prone to act first and then think. He steps out of the boat to walk with Jesus. He uh, identifies Jesus as the Messiah, but under pressure at Jesus' arrest, he denies he ever, ever, ever knew Jesus. He did that three times. But he's beginning to see the evidence of God's spirit at work. In Pentecost, in chapter 2, he's, be, he's becoming converted to God's ways. He seems to have one foot in the Hebrew camp and the other foot in the Gentile mission camp. But he still understands for himself that God's will is to be separate and distinct from Gentiles. And he too has enormous influence, especially in Jerusalem. And so as chapter 10 proceeds up to the verses that Peter read, Peter Lehman read, Cornelius and Peter each have their own version of their own uh, vision or some kind of a dream. Cornelius, in his home in Caesarea at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, he sees an angel of God who says, your prayer and your generosity are like a memorial to God. Go and find Peter in Joppa, who's living by the sea with a tanner. And so he sends two slaves and a devout soldier under his orders to Joppa. And by the way, finding Peter is no problem because a tanning business is much more offensive than any of the smells we have in Lancaster County. <laughs> Peter's vision is in his home in Joppa, up the coast. It's the next day at noon. 
He's on the roof praying, ready for lunch, hungry, waiting for lunch. And he has this vision of heaven opening and the sheet lowered down on four corners and all the animals that are forbidden to eat by a Jew in Leviticus 11 are on that sheet. And guess what? He's told to eat. Go kill and eat them. And predictably, how many times? Three, of course. Running theme. Three times. And he says, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. So he's trying to figure this out. He's puzzled. And understandably so. And he hears voices at the gate of his house. He goes down to see what's going on. And it's these messengers from Cornelius. And they tell him what's going on. And he says to them, come in to my house, which is astounding, isn't it? After what we just heard, he says, come in and eat. And then he puts them up overnight. Is he being converted? Well, maybe. We'll see what happens. The next day, Peter takes the next step with conversion. He travels with them to Cornelius' home. Now he's no longer on his turf. Now he's on the Gentiles' turf. He does take some other believers along with him. Peter has learned to think ahead a little bit and not just act. And he says to Cornelius when he gets here, you know I'm not supposed to be here. You know that. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone unclean. So I'm here. Do you notice, do you feel that tension in Peter's voice? I'm not supposed to be here, but... Here I am. What do you want? Now, a little history tells us that Peter would have every reason to be suspicious of a Roman centurion, especially from Caesarea. In about A.D. 26, Pilate's first year of rule, Pilate thought he would take care of the Jews who were always protesting about their rights to keep worship pure in their own eyes, especially in Jerusalem. And Pilate thinks he's going to take care of this problem, and he sets up an image of the emperor in Jerusalem. Of course, the temple's the highest point. And there's a big protest march the whole way over to Caesarea, where Pilate lives. And as the story goes, Pilate says, you either do this or you'll be killed. And so, in mob protest. They all bow down, bare their necks, ready to be killed by Pilate's soldiers, maybe centurions. Pilate relents. But nevertheless, this story is certainly known to Peter, you would think. And so you would think he would certainly have a lot of reason to be suspicious of coming to Caesarea to talk to a Roman centurion. Well, Cornelius tells of his experience. He says, we are here to listen what you can teach us about the Lord Jesus. It's not exactly what you might expect from a centurion who has all this power and position. We're here to listen. And Peter shares the gospel. And he says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but whoever, regardless of nation, whoever fears God and does what is right, is acceptable in God's sight. Peter goes on, Jesus preached peace to all. He's Lord of all. And you get that, don't you? Lord and emperor, same word. Pretty big stuff here. Lord of all. And Jesus anointed by power with, uh, uh, Jesus anointed by God with power and authority to heal. 
He lifted up the oppressed when he was alive, and we are all witnesses of this. He's telling Cornelius all this stuff. He was executed on a tree, and God raised him from the dead. And then Jesus appeared to many of us, ate with us, and told us to go to everyone and tell them what happened for the forgiveness of sins for all who believe. The good news in a nutshell. Moving to the piece that Peter Lehman read, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his people in some kind of visible fashion. They're speaking of tongues and praising God. And here's the wisdom of bringing somebody along to witness. Peter's companions are just, they're just blown away by this manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, echoing the words of the eunuch, can anyone withhold water for baptism? These people who have received the Holy Spirit? But as you might guess, word gets back to the Jerusalem mother nest, and people are not so sure about this. They're kind of upset with Peter breaking the laws of the scripture. We can easily, I think, feel this tension in this story. Certainly we have been taught, and we know from experience, that the scriptures are meant to be having a special place in our lives for instruction and for, for learning how to follow Jesus. And so we have the scriptures, and then we have experience, and there's this tension between the two. And I think we do not want to go completely on either end. And so Peter is simply obeying his Bible, right? Leviticus 11. That's his Bible, a part of it. But yet he also sees this fresh experience of the Holy Spirit in people whom Leviticus declares to be unclean. So how, how to work with that? That's the, that's the conversion that's happening in Peter and this early church. And one possible unclean population in our context may be people like Cornelius with military experience, both past and present. I, mean, I remember growing up being really surprised at a reunion to see my oldest, one of my oldest cousins came dressed in his army uniform. This is during the Vietnam era. And I was probably a young teenager, and I was, what's with that? that they're those people now, but, but he's one of my family. And our son-in-law is a military veteran. And we, we have learned to love Jason because he's our son-in-law, not because of his background. And he is rapidly embracing the Anabaptist vision of the gospel. And so maybe this is one area where we might think about, as we have been prompted to by Mennonite Central Committee's literature, especially a six-part lesson on returning veterans, returning hope, seeking peace together. Ron Adams writes in the first lesson that neither the strength of my convictions nor the rightness of my theology can overcome the call to love everyone that Jesus loves. Weird as it may be, I now hear Jesus calling me to step over the line and love veterans. End of quote. Today is also Mother's Day, and I had forgotten or maybe never knew that the origins of Mother's Day were in response to the carnage of the Civil War and the Franco-Prussian War, where it linked the personal devastation of mothers with bleeding hearts 
who had lost their sons in war. And the power of these mothers' voices were speaking against the carnage of war. That was the origin of Mother's Day. So here we are. And yesterday, I guess it was Thursday, I attended briefly the Vins Park prayer setting where people were praying for law enforcement, firefighters, military personnel. And I believe the message there, too, was to stop calling others unclean whom God loves, for this is the way of of God. And this love of God's ways, I believe, happens with an intimate connection with the vine of John 15, with Jesus, which leads to Peter's conversion and ours. This is how we know in chapter 15 that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And in 1 John, for the love of God is this that we obey. His commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. This, my friends, I believe, is the work of the church then and now. Connecting intimately with Jesus is our work. And with the prompting of the winds of the Holy Spirit, while living under the shadow of our own current empire, we too ask, we ask, who are we? Who are we to hinder God? When we see the presence of God's Spirit at work, even in those who might be considered unclean. Perhaps Marilyn Robinson gets it right, as much as anybody, when she says, and she wrote, Grace is not so poor a thing that it cannot present itself in any number of ways. Grace is not so poor a thing that it cannot present itself in any number of ways. Therefore, we get up and we go and we join God's kingdom.